Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. Today is part two of my conversation with Dr. Phil Zimbardo, renowned psychologist. So I, uh, I want to switch gears a little bit to reflect back on sort of one of the things or a key thing that sort of uh, made you so well known, and that was the Stanford Prison Project. And I know you've talked about this a great deal. And of course, there's been sort of some controversy since then regarding the fact that uh, there weren't appropriate controls and a whole variety of other criticisms. Maybe you can just describe the Stanford Prison Project uh, to the audience and give your sort of initial perspective and just allude to the probably more recent controversy about that study itself. And has that changed your perception? And maybe the other side of it is, which you're well aware of, is this idea of how good people can do evil things. And of course, you've written a book on that, and maybe you can uh, just tell us the title of that as well, but maybe starting with the uh, Stanford Prison Project. Sure. In 1971, at Stanford University, where I was a new professor, I decided to do an experimental study in which uh, we put good people in bad places. We had students play the role of either prisoner or guard about which they knew nothing. Most college students never think about becoming a prison guard as a career, and um, very few of them ever go to jail. So we put an ad in the local paper and uh, it simply said, wanted college students for a two-week study on prison life, very minimized. 75 students answered the ad, uh, and then my team gave them extensive psychological tests and interviews, and we picked 24 who, by all standard measures, were normal and healthy. And then we randomly assigned half are going to be guards, half are going to be prisoners. And then we created a physical prison in the basement of the psychology department, then known as Jordan Hall, and uh, we created uh, three cells into which we would put three uh, of the boys assigned to be prisoners. Uh, and then we had three backup prisoners waiting in case some of the other prisoners uh, broke down and wanted to quit. And then we same thing, we had uh, nine prison guards, three on each uh, eight-hour shifts, and then three backup guards. And what made this study work that people rarely notice is that I had arranged with the local police chief, and we still remember his name is Chief Zurka, Z-U-R-C-H-E-R. He was a new police chief uh, in, in the area. I arranged with him to have a Sunday morning squad car that got off duty to go around and arrest the boys who were about to play the role of prisoner. And so that made it very dramatic. I mean, everybody knew 
at some level, this must be connected to the experiment I signed up for at Stanford. But in fact, a policeman came, read them their rights, handcuffed them, put them in a squad car, sirens wailing, took them to the Palo Alto police station and did a formal booking, fingerprints, photo, and then uh, put them in a cell with a blindfold on. So all of that was designed to make them feel uh, you are in a new category. You are you are imprisoned. And then my graduate students, Kurt Banks and Craig Haney, came, picked them up, still with the, a blindfold on, drove them down to Stanford University, put them down and walked them down to the, the, the basement where the prison was, and then stripped them naked, and then took off the blindfold. And so the first thing they see is themselves, and we had a big mirror for this. First thing they see is themselves standing helpless and naked. And they say, and welcome to the Stanford prison. And then they, we put in, we had costumes they put on, uh, prison numbers in place of their name. And the guards all wore military uniforms. We got an army and navy store. And then the study began. The only thing, we had minimal training for the guards, but we made clear no physical force, only psychological force. And then again, if the prisoners escape, your your job is over. They got paid $15 an hour. Prisoners and guards, the same thing, for as long as they would stay in. And we we decided the study was going to go for one week and at the end of the week, maybe we would switch roles. The guards would become prisoners, prisoners would come. And that could never happen because the remaining prisoners would have really abused the guards. Uh, so, so in short, what happened was on the first day, nothing. Nothing happened because the guards just felt awkward. I mean, being in a uniform, a military uniform. Again, this is in the 70s, so most college students were anti Vietnam War, you know, anti-military, but here they were in a military uniform with a with a baton, handcuffs, and military style, and so they they had them do um, simple things, you know, d- jumping jacks, push-ups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then what the main thing they did is they called each prisoner by his number rather than a name because they didn't even know the names; they would just read the name. And the, that got many of the prisoners really upset to become a number. And so that night, the prisoners revolted, meaning they locked themselves in their cell. They put a bed sheet around the door and wrapped it around the handle so the guards couldn't get them out. And then they made a big mistake of yelling and screaming, cursing the guards, putting them down, saying... Um, you know, when we get out, we're going to kick your ass. And the, that was the guards on the morning shift that discovered this. And then they called in, they came to see me, and I said, I said, it's your prison, what do you, what do you want to do? They said, we need help. So they called all, all 12 guards, and they literally broke down the doors of those cells. And there were two, two cells did it, and a third cell was in quote, the good cell. They were not part of the revolution. And that changed everything. The guards stripped those prisoners naked, literally tied them up, tied their hands and feet, 
put, the, put some of them in solitary confinement, which was just a dark closet. And at that moment, it stopped from being oh, a simulated study of prison life to become a very realistic study of prison life. And the young man who was the ringleader of the rebellion, Doug Corpy, prisoner 8612, I remember after all these 50 years, uh, he was the word, he was always cursing and yelling. Now we made a videotape of everything and you could hear him, he had a high pitched voice, yelling, screaming, cursing. And the guards put tremendous pressure on him and he had an emotional breakdown and had to be released in 36 hours. And then he became a model of how to get out, I mean, for other prisoners. And so each day thereafter, another prisoner had a breakdown in various ways. And so by the end of the first week, we had to release five prisoners and then replace them. We made our experiment, again, very realistic. We had a prison chaplain come down to hear about prisoner complaints. We had a parole board hearing headed by an ex-convict. Uh, we had parents' day. Par parents and friends could come down uh, and talk with their, their, their inmate. Uh, so we did things that, even though it was a mock study, a mock basement, I mean, didn't look like it. doors with bars on it, but you know, it's, it clearly, clearly wasn't a prison. But none of these kids had ever been in a prison. So it, it felt like, it became like, it was a prison of the mind. So I ended the study after six days when five prisons had broken down and we were just concerned that, you know, it, was, it could get worse. And then we spent a whole day debriefing the guards and the prisoners and then having them all together. And then we followed all of them up for another month uh, or two. All it is, it's not a real experiment. It's a demonstration of the power of a social situation to change the perception and mentality of intelligent participants. That's the main thing. There have been various criti criticisms, of course, over the years at various levels. And I've actually written a 20-page rebuttal, which I could share with you to share with your listeners, going through each criticism to say, here's what the criticism was, here's why it's not valid. So th that little study has become the most classic study in all of psychology, meaning it's in every high school psych book, every college psych book, every because it's drama. I mean, you know, most, most experiments go for one hour, they're one single hour. And here, because it went on day and night, and, and we had videotapes of everything that you could see that we shared with, with the audiences, you could see the breakdown of prisoners slowly over time. You could see the increasing brutality of some of the guards over time. So you saw behavior, psychology changing over a timeline. And no research ha had ever done that before. Let me ask, or a, a, a bring up another point, which is Abu Ghraib and your involvement and how that led you to write your book. Mm. In Iraqi war, the American military captured a number of Iraqis and wanted to get information from them about where resources were hidden, uh, what plans there were to attack, 
and they brought these, oh, maybe a thousand prisoners down to a basement uh, in, in a place called Abu Ghraib. And then they had uh, military soldiers, mostly non-commissioned, try, interviewing them, trying to get them to spill the beans. And, and they were not effective, partly because they also had to have translators. So, so American guard would ask a question, the translator would translate it into, into Iraqi, they would answer and go back. And it was clear this is not doing it, getting anything, getting anything meaningful. And what happened was the guards then, out of really truly frustration, aggression, out of frustration, began to beat up the prisoners physically. Like one guard would hold their hands, the other would, would be slapping them to say, you know, where did you hide the weapons and so forth. Curiously, all the abuse happened only on the night shift, not in the day shift. And I think is in the day shift, there were senior officers hanging around. In the night shift, you know, which went from maybe midnight to eight in the morning or something, there were no senior officers around ever. So the lower, lower rank officers felt they could get away with anything. And then they began to uh, dehumanize the prisoners. There's an, two things, dehumanize in every imaginable way, oh, have them simulate sodomy on one another, dragging them around with, with a dog chain on their neck. They had also female guards mixed in with male guards. And we know, we know some of those male guards and female guards were having sex because uh, they even took pictures of themselves having sex. And the key was the pictures. They were so proud of what they were doing, and the cell phones had just just been invented, that they were taking pictures of everything, more than a thousand pictures. And so the abuse was documented. And I, I think I'm the only one outside of the military court who has still those documents, because I became a... Um, representative for one of the guards, Chip Frederick, who was the senior, he was a senior guard on the night shift. And he had just gotten gotten there when these abuses were starting up. And he was a really good guy. I, I checked his whole background before I agreed to be uh, an expert witness for him at the trial. The reason there was a trial is somebody in that night shift uh, sent some of these pictures to a senior officer. And these are pictures of prisoners naked, simulating sodomy. These are prisoners, as I said, with a dog leash around their neck being dragged by a female prisoner, female guard across the aisle. And in his trial of Chip Frederick, uh, this is a military trial, it was only a military officer as a judge, I was able to say, Your Honor, Chip Frederick is guilty as charged. He participated in these events, which he now is sorry for and knows he should not have done that. But what I want to highlight is that of all the things done, he is seen as only in a single incident of harming a prisoner. And that was uh, putting a bag over a prisoner's head, having him stand on a box, and then attaching electrodes to his fingers and telling the prisoner that when he fell off the box, when his legs gave up, gave out, 
he would electrocute himself. Now, it, it didn't happen. The electrodes were not attached to anything, but it was really psychological torture, uh, which you imagine is even worse. So I made the defense, and the army wanted to give Chip Frederick 15 years of hard labor. And with my defense, and I said he's guilty. I mean, he's got to serve time. But, you know, he did what the others were doing. He, he should have ex exercised more uh, con control over the others. There's many incidents documented where he did say that's going too far. And I got his sentence reduced to four years. It's still four years hard labor. His wife left him. His friends abandoned him. When it was over, he, st he went to live with his parents, which he still is, is living, uh, I forget where, in the South with his parents. So, and then I wrote up in great detail th these findings in a book I call The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil. And that was him. He was a good, good person throughout life. And you put him in an evil situation and the power of the situation dominates, just as in it dominated with uh, the Stanford prison guards. Well, you know, it is interesting how people would like one event in somebody's life to judge their life, right? A negative event. And it's sort of fascinating. You'll have a person who has spent their whole life being of service or doing good things, one bad event, and they go, that's a horrible person. It's sort of fascinating, though. You'll take an evil person who does one act, and they go, he's amazing. He's a hero. <laughs> and then dismiss all the horrible things that person has done. It only goes one way, one direction. Well, why, why is that, do you think? Why do you think it goes one way? Oh, I don't know. That's a good, really good question. It's, um, I mean, har horrible events are just stick in our minds. They are you know, flashlights, and they make us want to say, why, how could I do that? You know, again, when people do good things all their life, they go unnoticed. I mean, who notices beside your, your parents? And so it's really, if you're a good person, a single thing you do, which is off of the main track, is noted immediately. You know, if you've been a roughneck all of your life, then you do one nice thing. It's the contrast effect. That's what we're talking about. It's a big contrast effect. And your little little good deed is now exaggerated to say, wow, uh, look what he did. He, he gave $10 to this cause or he helped a little kid up who was, who, who was being uh, beaten up by other, bigger kids. Well, you know, in some ways it goes back, I, I think, to what we were talking about earlier, you know, this, the uh, housewives of Dubai or whatever, where what gets people's attention is sort of negativity. So you, you're a good person your whole life and you do a, or something bad happens or you do a bad act and everybody jumps on you. Yet a bad person who is not noticed or has no history, they do a good thing. And they don't, you know, they only get the positive benefit. They don't get the negative uh, aspects of, of their past uh, laid upon them. It's like, oh, they were horrible before, but look what they did. <laughs> yeah. Well, redemption. I mean, it's, it's uh, even though you've, you've done bad in the past, it's always possible to redeem yourself by going on the right path 
taking the right step and, and essentially helping others. Uh, this was part of the central Christian mythology, if you will, or Christian teachings. If you're doing good all of your life, it's not noticed. It becomes, you know, he's a good person is what you say, or he's a kind person. But you don't notice all the good deeds because we never see anybody other than in very narrow situations where we are with them. And we ha I have to imagine, what does James Doty do when he's not on this podcast or he's not in the operating room? And and you, so you build into your mind, well, he must be playing with his kids. He must be talking with interns. You know, so I, I fill in parts of what could be possible and parts, parts of what could be possible in a positive way. And that, you know, and, and that's, so that's a, a good positivity impact. Let me ask uh, two more questions. As if you mentioned being a physician, I've noticed that if someone comes into the emergency room in distress, that frequently they will revert to their primary language. So if English was not their primary language, they revert back to whatever is, even though they've been in this country for decades. And my assessment is that you have these uh, behaviors that are so deeply ingrained that when you are stressed or anxious, you fall back on those. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with individuals, as an example, we're talking about bad people, if you will, who do good, but bad people who were in prison for years and let's say for whatever reason, the media, the public got involved and got them out of prison because there was some issue or other. Then the person gets out of prison and nominally is a quote unquote good person. And then some event occurs and then they go murder somebody. And uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Or is this the same type of effect where you know, they've, they've grown up in very abusive, negative backgrounds, and that's ingrained in them. And then, you know, they sort of come out and they're trying to be their best selves, but they get stressed, and then they revert back to the tools that they've used to survive in the past. Yeah, I think that's it. It's the tools of survival. I mean, it's just so easy. You know, yes, people, under what conditions would you punch somebody in the face? Most people say none, you know, but if, if you survived being in a gang infested environment, if you survived in any ghetto, uh, the way you survive is by showing you are tough and you walk in a certain way, you know, you, you dress cool, but at some point you, you know, you may have to beat up somebody else. And it's going to be easier if the person is a little weaker and smaller than you. And so that becomes ingrained. And, you know, once you do it as a kid, that it's always in your head. I made the leap from nothing to having some status in this place, in this gang, by beating up somebody else. So that's something I could always fall back on, even though now I'm trying to be a good person, do good deeds. Um, uh, when the bad stuff hits the fan, I'm ready to punch somebody out. It's terrible that that continues to be in our minds as a way of thinking. Well, I guess the reality is that regardless of how 
sort of much many of us have learned to sort of do the right thing, we carry this baggage that's uh, very much attached to us and that can come out uh, when we least expect it sometimes, I think. One last question. So uh, obviously you're well aware of sort of the divisive nature of political discourse. Any thoughts on how to deal with that or overcome it? No, no it's, it's actually worse now than ever. You know, Trump is a magnet for divisive discourse. But again, it's the media. I mean, it's, you know, I, I used to love to watch CNN, but every night I t tune, it, tune into it, it's, it's something about Trump versus the Justice Department or, you know, it's, it's the media pitting forces against each other to get viewer attention. It's what we said earlier. And it's just not clear how, we, how you could change it because, you know, one... One CNN program, one PBS station, you know, gets viewed by a million people. And, you know, I write a book, I write an article, maybe a few hundred people see it, a thousand if I'm lucky. Again, it's, it's the media working to get attention to their program rather than to any other competing program. And, you know, the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. So they're always going to have something grim, something, if it's, you know, flash floods in Mississippi, earthquakes, 117 degrees in uh, Davis, California. They highlight all, all the negatives just to get your attention. Yeah, I, I think that conversely, when they do have programs that are positive, many of them don't get viewed very much, right? And I think that's uh, one of the challenges. Also, although I would say it seems that more recently, at least not necessarily the news, but TV shows are uh, more thoughtful and leading with compassion, if you will. And one of those, as an example, is Ted Lasso. And that's a good example of, I mean, I watch very little TV, but I, I watch a number of those programs. And he's almost a model of how to be a good guy, a good parent, a good t teacher, a good team leader. And, but again, I would like to know what um, the composition of his, his viewership, you know, who, who is really watching? He, they, they got a good following, but who, who is watching? Is it mostly students and teachers? Is it mostly athletes? The key in all of this is what do you have to do to get support from advertisers? So now if it's public broadcasting, then you don't need that. But public broadcasting gets very low ratings in general. But again, I would be curious to see what is the, what advertisements, what is the source of income uh, to keep uh, Ted Lasso going, uh, because it clearly should. Now, it's also well played, well acted. There's a number of good male and female um, actors uh, that have won awards because of the good acting. So yes, it, it's nice to end on that, that positive, upbeat message that it's, it's possible to have TV sharing po good messages that we all can benefit from. No, I think that's right. And I think it's also a message that if you 
look at the world through curiosity and openness, you understand that uh, on some level everyone is suffering and also that I think we're frail, fragile human beings and most of us are just trying to do the best we can. And again, Ted Lasso is a frail human being, often does stupid things, but you know, he says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and then he does the right thing. So again, he, he's, he's a unique character in television because he is flawed, but still succeeds despite the flaws. And I think maybe that's sort of the message of our whole conversation here is that we're all flawed, and in the face of those flaws, uh, hopefully we can all succeed and actually um, thrive and um, elevate ourselves so that even with those flaws, we still do good in the world. Yes, that's a great way to end. Thanks for having me, James. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.